rebellious son seeks a better life and wasted all he had. Imagine that you're God. Uh, this might be some, for some of us, might be a little easier to do than for others. But imagine, uh, some awkward elbows there. This message is for you, Bill. Uh, th- imagine that you're God, uh, and you enter into the world, and you have to pick a communication strategy. You have a limited window of time uh, to tell people what you're like, to tell people what the Father is like, to tell people your plan uh, of salvation, to tell people that you love the world, to demonstrate what God is like. What communication strategy would you choose if, if you were God? Would you go on, C- go on CNN or maybe go on Fox News or grab as many microphones as you could or tweet it? I mean, what, what communication strategy would you pick? Would you make a documentary to, to announce and to let people know essentially what, what God is like. A, a couple thousand years ago, this is the situation that Jesus is essentially in. He uh, is God. He is, is moved into the neighborhood. He's God in a bod who showed up uh, to, to show people what God is like. And, and it's interesting as you begin to read the Gospels to see uh, what communication strategies that Jesus chooses. One of his communication strategies, and we don't really think of it as a communication strategy, but it is, is, is to do miracles. And we've looked at this uh, quite a bit here, especially this summer, that, that Jesus would do miracles. And this is sort of his way of saying, instead of me giving you another sermon on the mount, or instead of me telling you what God is like, uh, let me just sort of show you, because when God shows up, when God enters in, he takes broken things and he puts them back together. This is what God is like. Doing a miracle, it's a pretty good Strategy, if you have that one in your toolbox, uh, to show people this is essentially what God is like. And one of the other communication strategies that Jesus chooses to show people or to tell people what God is like, and this is an interesting one, and this is what I want to spend the next uh, three weeks talking about, is that he often would choose to tell stories. And sort of the church word for this, or the, the Bible word for this, is parables. And for some of us, you've been hanging around church for a while, you read a lot of the parables. But one third of the time that Jesus is teaching or talking, uh, he chooses to tell stories. And this seems, I'm not sure I would pick this communication strategy if I was God. If I'm trying to tell people, you know, I'm savior of the world, maybe if I'm trying to go out for grandpa of the world and tell stories, but you would find him just sitting down and you would often find him teaching in sort of telling these stories and these parables. Uh, Jesus would take sort of everyday scenery. Uh, he would take an image that everybody was familiar with, whether it was a mustard seed or a mountain or a farmer, and he would say, let me tell you a story. And he would, do the, he would, he would share these stories as a way to say, this is what God uh, is like. And oftentimes you'd find the disciples uh, a little frustrated because they sort of understand that the time is limited. The threat of crucifixion is always sort of looming and you don't really see Jesus that rushed when he's telling stories, do you? You just sort of, you know, the disciples are kind of, you know, God, maybe, you know, Jesus can wrap it up a little bit, maybe beef up the application. People are kind of getting confused when you tell these stories and you see Jesus just, let me tell you the one about the farmer. (laughs) 
And he's sharing these stories to demonstrate, to show people. This is a communication strategy to tell people what God is like. Well, one day in particular, he tells a story that's one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible. In fact, it's one of the most famous stories that's ever been told in the history of the world. And if you've been hanging around church for a while, you're certainly familiar with the story. Uh, but it's a story that commonly gets told as the story about the prodigal son. And that's a bit of a, a misnaming of the story because we often read the story as a story about one son that gets lost. And Jesus tells this story about two sons that get lost for very, very different reasons. If you have a Bible, you can open it with me to Luke chapter 15. That's where the story is told. Luke chapter 15, Matthew, Mark, and the Gospel of Luke. He records this story. And the word prodigal, uh, it literally just means extravagant. And so when you begin reading the story, you begin to hear the story about this son who goes and, and has uh, a wild lifestyle, this extravagant prodigal lifestyle. But it's as much a story about a prodigal father who is extravagant with grace and love towards this son as it is about a prodigal son. And when you begin to read the story, when Jesus teaches, Jesus is always a, a contextual teacher. When Jesus, he's not professorial. He's not just sort of plucking things and saying, I think you need to hear this or learn this. He's interacting with his context. He's interacting with his environment. Uh, you often see Jesus responding to the religious debates of his day. He'll often be taking questions and responding to questions that people ask. And so when he shares this story of the prodigal son, the, the, the dad that loses two sons, uh, he shares this story for a very particular uh, specific reason. If you have a Bible, you can read in Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1, it sort of sets up the story. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. They say about Jesus, he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. One of the central religious debates in the time, the life of Jesus, had to do with this idea of table fellowship. And who you allowed to eat at the table with you was a big deal in sort of these religious conversations. And the reason it was a big deal, and I would say this is true even in our world today, even though it's not a ceremonial, when you choose to eat with someone, it's a way of dignifying that person or it's a way of honoring that person. And so the issue that the Pharisees and the religious leaders have with Jesus, uh, it's not just he's sharing a guacamole bowl with some people that he shouldn't be. The issue is he's giving honor and dignity to people that have lost it. This whole idea of I can't believe he's eating with those people, it's because he's giving honor and dignity to people that the religiously elite in this day would say, you should not be giving dignity to them. They don't deserve a place at the table. And certainly God wouldn't do that. Certainly, if this man claims to speak for God, that's not what God would do. They have lost their honor. They have lost their dignity. And this man is eating with tax collectors and prostitutes. He's eating with the people that shouldn't be sitting at the table. And so in response to this whole issue of who you eat with and ultimately who you give honor to, instead of Jesus saying, well, let me you know, sort of give you five points on why I do this, and this is going to be a sermon about, you know, we're having a cross to get the end. Instead of doing that, Jesus gives them a series of three different stories. 
And in response to this whole idea of who you eat with, Jesus tells him a story. The first story that he tells him in Luke chapter 15 is he tells him a story about a shepherd. And essentially he's saying God is like a shepherd. And this shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of these sheep gets lost. And instead of just sort of counting the 99 and saying, well, at least I still have these sheep, this shepherd leverages, their, he, he goes after this one she, he, he risks losing these 99 to go after this one, and this is Jesus' way of saying, that's why I eat with who I eat with, because that is what God is like. And he responds to this whole scandal of who he's been eating with. This whole issue of table fellowship would be very scandalous in terms of who Jesus is sharing a meal with or breaking bread with. And he tells another story. He says, God is like a shepherd. And even that story would be sort of scandalous to compare God to a shepherd. Shepherds were dirty. You didn't want your son or daughter to grow up and, and be a shepherd in this culture. And to say God is like a shepherd, this would be, uh, it's almost as if he's responding to the scandal by telling a scandalous story. And then he tells another story. He says, God is like a housewife that loses a coin. And she obsesses over finding this coin. She turns over every cushion. She flips every futon over. She looks for this coin everywhere until she finds it. And then when she finds it, she celebrates that she has this coin. And Jesus tells the story to say, this is what God is like. And this is how he's responding to this whole scandal of who he's sharing a meal with. And then he tells what essentially would be the capstone story of this whole discussion of table fellowship. He tells the story, this parable, about this father that loses two sons. And this is the story that many of us are familiar with. Luke chapter 15, we'll start reading in verse 11 is where the story starts. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. So he's already told these two stories about the shepherd. God is like a shepherd and God is like a housewife that loses a coin. And now he says, God is like a father that has two sons. He says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And this father gives a, a, a wad of cash to this boy and says, there you go. On the surface, when you read this story, it seems like a story about bad parenting, doesn't it? I mean, this kid hasn't even taken a Dave Ramsey course. I mean, he's just, just, there you go. Just have fun. Good luck. We'll keep our fingers crossed here at home. But no story that Jesus tells exposes the first century culture like this particular story. This is a culture that is shame and honor based. And by asking his father for his share of the inheritance, he's actually uh, shaming his father in a very sort of what would ultimately be a very public way. To ask for your inheritance in this culture and in this world, you would never do that. To ask for this amount of money from your father, you would never do that because you don't get money from your father, you don't get your inheritance in this world until your father is dead. And so essentially what this son is doing in the story, and Jesus tells this story in such a way that it would be shocking to the audience, he is essentially saying, uh, Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish, you, I wish you were dead. And so he has shamed his father. This would be heartbreaking to this dad. This is not just sort of this casual, oh, here's some money, you know, good luck. Gotta go find himself. This is a way of shaming his dad. It wouldn't just shame the father. Uh, he has actually, by doing this, he has brought enormous shame on the entire village that he lives in. In this culture, uh, word would start to get around in the village. Did you hear what Bill's son John did? did I can't believe he did that. 
He asked for his share of the inheritance. He has left. He has laid down his cultural identity. He decided not to be one of us. He decided to go be a part of something else. There is deep shame that he has brought on the entire village by asking the father for his share of the inheritance. We have no cultural equivalent for the amount of shame that this boy has brought on his family. This would be like going to the state fair, cutting big text down, and then selling it to Oklahoma. That, that's the level of shame. He has shamed our people. Uh, it's that kind of shame we're talking about. Some of you are like, oh, I get it now. It's that kind of a shame he has brought upon his village. And there would be this heartbreak. I can't believe this boy of mine has done this. And Jesus continues telling the story. He says he shamed the father, and he tells it in such a way that it would be shocking to the audience. He tells the story in such a way, uh, it's like a movie that you're watching. And the first scene is sort of horrific. It sort of takes your breath away by what this, this son has done. And then it says, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. And Jesus tells this story in such a way, it's actually genius storytelling, that it just keeps getting worse for this son. The audience would continue to be drawn in. He, sa he says at first, he shames his father. Then he goes to the distant country, which is code word for Gentile. And this is a group of people that if you live in this boy's village, you do not interact, a good Jewish boy uh, does not go to take up residence with Gentiles. And so the audience would be, I can't believe this kid has done this. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country. This would be the real shocking point of the story. Not only does he live with Gentiles, now he works for one. And the audience would be going, this kid, this is, this is awful. And this guy that he works for, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. So now there's a religious implication to the story because a good Jewish boy does not work with pigs. These are unclean animals. He's defiling himself, not just, he's not just shamed his father, he's now shaming his God. There's sort of this religious implication to the story. He longed, verse 16, to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So this kid's starving and he's living in a pig pen. When he came to his senses, verse 17, it says there's this moment, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. And there's this moment where he wakes up, and there's this sense, the shame that washes over him that says, I do not belong here. How in the world did I end up here? Because this is not where I belong. He has this moment where he wakes up and he comes to his senses and this shame sort of settles in. How did I get here? How did I end up in this pig pen? I think we usually think of shame as 100% bad, as if it's this 100% sort of bad emotion uh, to experience. And hang with me on this thought. Sometimes there's a type of shame that's actually healthy. There's a type of shame that, that like this, this boy experiences, this waking up to say, this is not where I belong. I'm actually better than this. I've settled for something less than who I am and what I deserve. 
There's a type of shame that is actually healthy when you feel it, the sense of I don't belong here in this particular pig pen. If you still have the capacity for shame, it means you, you still have the capacity to hear the Father's voice rattling around. If you still have the capacity for shame, it means you have the ability to recognize when you are in a pig pen. Some people don't have that ability. Some people put a tent down. I'll just stay here a while. This looks pretty good. If you have this capacity for shame, it's, it's not a, wholly negative, a holistic sort of negative experience. It actually can be a good thing, this healthy sort of shame that settles in. And we often think, well, shame is, is, is all bad. God would never want us to experience shame. Well, it's not the father that comes into the pig pen to make him feel shame. It's him waking up, coming to his senses, and saying, this is not where I belong. It's this healthy shame that settles in. Have you ever met someone who doesn't have the capacity for shame at all? They're completely shameless. They can destroy a relationship. That is dangerous. They don't feel anything. They could rob a bank. They don't feel anything. Then they're just completely shameless. A certain amount of shame, a healthy dose of shame, is, is actually can be a really good thing, the sense that I don't belong here. Shame is a lot like fear. You don't want to live your life dominated, dominated by it, but when you drive a car... You need to have a healthy fear of oncoming traffic. It's sort of part of the deal. And shame works like that. Sometimes shame, healthy shame, can come to us like a rope. Healthy shame gets dropped to us when we are in a pig pen, maybe of our own making. And if we grab it, it can actually be the thing that leads us home and back into the arms of the Father where we belong. Healthy shame comes to us like a rope. And if you grab it, it can actually be the thing that begins to lead you back where you belong. Healthy shame is this sense, I don't belong here. Healthy shame is this coming to your senses, this waking up, this is not where I belong. And it's grabbing the rope as this boy is about to do. And if we don't have the, the, the recognition of what healthy shame is, then we won't begin to recognize when shame becomes really destructive. Because shame is a lot like medicine. A little bit of it can begin to wake you up. A little bit of it can begin to actually make you well. But if you take too much of it, it can begin to reach lethal dosage levels. And so this is a story about this boy who has this moment of healthy shame. This is not where I belong. And he grabs the rope and he begins the long walk home back into the arms of the father. This pig pen isn't where I belong. And so he wakes up in the pig pen, and it says in verse 18 that he rehearses this speech to himself. He's in the pig pen, and he says, I gotta go home. And he says, I will set out, verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he's in the pig pen, I sort of love the imagery here, and he's rehearsing his speech. That was how I knew I was in a lot of trouble when I was a kid, when I was rehearsing the speech I was gonna tell my dad. Some of you remember those moments? Like, I will tell my dad that uh, I did not know the water tower was not bulletproof. Like, I will tell my dad, like, I did not know that a paintball gun could inflict that much damage on someone. Like, I, I will tell my dad, I did not know that uh, the, the Portageon had someone in it when I flipped it over. Like, I will tell my dad, like, 
these may or may not be real life examples. Like, like you, <laughs> you, that was when you knew uh, this is going to be a long walk home. When you're rehearsing the speech in your head that you're going to tell the father. And so he's rehearsing the speech and it says he begins to make the pilgrimage back into the arms of his dad. And he's going to make the pilgrimage and the walk home. And it says, so he got up. He'd rehearsed the speech and he got up and he went to his father. He's pulled back into the arms of his dad. And while he was still a long way off, I love this, his father, and I imagine Jesus is sort of peering over at the Pharisees when he tells this part of the story. The father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him, and he began to kiss him. It says he kisses the son. And the son said to him, verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He gives the rehearsed speech. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the son comes back into the arms of the father, and he says, Dad, I, I, you won't believe what I did. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And if you're anything like me, you read that and you go, that's a bit of a dramatic leap. The word uh, worthy is, is this word axios in Greek, and it literally is, a, is an economic term. And essentially what this boy is saying is, I have no value. I, like, I'm a, I'm a bankrupt bank account. I have no value or worth at all. How did he get there? How did he get from the pig pen and, and this sort of... Uh, horrible thing that he's done all of a sudden to leaping to this sense that I have no worth at all. Some of us have made that leap before. From I did something wrong to I am something wrong. How does that type of shame begin to settle in? This boy would know what to expect when he returned home. The audience that was listening would sort of have this awareness of, of a religious ceremony that would be conducted for someone that had shamed their village. There was a ceremony in the first century world, it was called a kazeza. And what you would do at a kazeza, if somebody had shamed you, or someone had shamed their village, if someone had married a, a woman they weren't supposed to, or someone had done something just like they had gone to work for a Gentile like this boy had done, they would gather around you and they would take a jar that was filled with corn and nuts and at this kazeza, they would smash it in your presence and it was a way of saying, you're not worth anything to us. It was a way of shaming someone. It was a way of saying, we cut you off from us. You're not welcome here. And so when he says, I'm not worth anything, it's because this boy knows what's coming in his direction. He knows that there is going to be a kazaza that happens. Sometimes shame can be the thing that leads you home. Sometimes shame goes too far and can be what buries you and leave you with this sense of I am totally worthless. We don't have kazazas in our world anymore. Nobody breaks jars of corn and nuts when they wanna shame somebody. But we still have shame ceremonies in our world, don't we? Some of us, there, there's broken glass, corn, nuts in your head, in your heart, where you have shamed yourself or something. Maybe uh, your shame ceremony happens because you're what I call a, a, an inflator. And what an inflator decides, it's essentially what this prodigal decided, that my sins, my failures, my pig pen, 
is bigger than my identity as a child of God. And when you begin to make that leap, and that's why that worthlessness washes over you, because you've decided, you've inflated your bad decisions, your failures, your missteps, your sins, your pig pen, your spring break 1987, whatever it is, you've blown it up. And you've said, that's who I am. And you've inflated it. And you have yourself a little shame ceremony. This worthlessness that washes over you because you've inflated your bad behavior, you've inflated your sins to be bigger than your identity as a child of God. And this is the recipe for shame. I did, therefore I am. What I did amounts to who I am. That is a recipe to end up feeling completely worthless in this life. And this is the announcement of the gospel. And this is the scandal of the gospel. Your behavior and your sins and your failures and your missteps do not define your identity. Your identity as a child of God is bigger than your sins and failures in this world and in this life. And this is the announcement of the gospel. And this is why Jesus tells this story to all those that are gathered as if to say, their identity as a child of God, your identity as a child of God is bigger than any sins that you've ever done. And some would hear this and they would say, that is really good news. This is really good news. There are no shame ceremonies in the presence of Jesus. Maybe for you, your shame ceremony happens, your kazeza happens because you're a chronic comparer. And you go through life comparing yourself to everyone and everything and their successes. And we, we compare ourselves, it's pretty natural in life, you learn that you're tall or short based on looking at someone else. Uh, but for you, it goes further than that. And other people's successes begin to mean your failure. And you can't celebrate for people. And you go through life and you know the worst about you, you know the horrible things, you know the, 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 the dark secrets, and you begin to hold up your interiors, the worst of what you know about you, to everybody else's exteriors and the best of what you see in everybody else. And you're a comparer. And this is how your shame ceremony starts. Maybe every time you get on Facebook, maybe every time you get on Instagram and you see all the good things that are going on in someone else's life and there's this little shame ceremony this worthlessness that washes over. And it might not be a broken jar, but in your head and heart, there was a shame ceremony. Maybe for you, you're a projector. This is what your shame ceremony looks like. And you know all the negative things, you know all the horrible things in your head about your past, about your story. And you have this tape playing in your head reminding, of it, of you, reminding you of it all the time. And you assume, if I know the worst about me, then everybody is thinking the worst about me. And you project it onto every relationship. You assume that they have that same hate tape playing in their head about you that you have about yourself. And you assume God thinks the same thing. You've projected that on God. It's caused friction in your relationship with others. It's destroyed parts of your spiritual relationship because you've projected that shame that you feel on everyone else. They feel that way about me. Too. That's your shame ceremony. It's left you with a sense of worthlessness. Maybe for you, you're a translator. I have a degree in translation. Uh, what a translator does is you take every minor criticism 
and you translate it into a major attack of your character. And you could hear your wife, your wife could say, hey, honey, you forgot to take out the trash. And, and you translate that to hear, uh, hey, honey, you are trash. <laughs> and it, it just speaks into the shame in your head and heart. And you go through life translating it. And you go through life responding with this, well, I know I'm not perfect. It's like, well, thank you. We were all having a debate about whether or not you were perfect. We appreciate you clearing that up for us. And, you try, and someone could fire like a BB gun of criticism in your direction, and you pick up a machine gun because you translate everything, and it speaks into your shame, and any minor criticism speaks into this worthlessness that you feel that that other person just sort of bumped into. And that's your shame ceremony. Maybe for you, you're an exaggerator, and you have no moral scale for your, for your missteps and your failures and your sins. And any sort of petty fault gets, gets blown up and exaggerated into being a major moral failure. And you go through life and you can't tell the difference in your head and heart between a misdemeanor and a felony. And anything you do wrong, you beat yourself up over it, you exaggerate it, you have this little shame ceremony in your head where you feel worthless over and over again. And I was talking with a counselor recently about this because I was feeling this like degree of shame in my life. And I went in and I said, I'm feeling this thing in me. Is it guilt? What is this? And he says, you don't know the difference, Jared, between finding a dollar on the street and robbing a bank. There's this shame that's settled in. And your moral scale, shame has blown apart your moral scale. Some of us will spend hours over obsessing over something that you did wrong that shouldn't have even taken up more than two seconds in your brain. And it's because you're an exaggerator. That's what your shame ceremony looks like. And Jesus tells this story to say, that's not how God works. That's not what God looks like. And he tells this story to say, this is why I eat with who I eat with. Because there are no shame ceremonies in the presence of Jesus. And your identity as a child of God is bigger than your failures and your missteps as a sinner in this life. And where shame comes to exaggerate, where shame comes to make you feel worthless by inflating or projecting or whatever it is, the, the voice of the living God, the voice of the Father speaks over and into whatever pig pen you find yourself in. And he's not coming with a jar of corn nuts. He's coming with a rope. And he's saying it's time to come home. And you're always welcome back because your identity as a child of God is bigger than any failures you could ever have in this life as a sinner. And I imagine some of the tax collectors and prostitutes that are gathered there would hear this and they would go, that's good news. And for those of us 2,000 years later that hear this, that's really good news. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this story that shame is not your motivator, that it's the kindness of God that leads us home. God, I thank you for this story that we're gonna look at together over the next few weeks, the power of it. And I pray that for someone that's in a pig pen today and they've been beating themselves up over it, God, I just pray they take the rope and they take it and they allow it to be the thing that leads them home. And God, thank you for the cross that there are no shame ceremonies in the presence of Jesus. 
We might have a shame ceremony in our head and our heart because we compare ourselves or we project onto others or we exaggerate, but God, there are no shame ceremonies in the presence of Jesus. We thank you for that. God, we thank you for the message and the hope that you told us in this story. And we thank you that that is what God is like. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.